even think that word relationship. And the fact is that human beings are relational creatures. That's how God made us. God designed people to live in fellowship with him and others. That was a part of how he made us. Not for isolation, but to have a social relationship and social interactions with others, but also him. Most importantly, him. And as you think about oftentimes what is the number one factor in how much happiness or joy you would experience in life or perhaps even perceive to experience in life, it would be the number one factor would be tied to the relationships that you have starting with God and then with other people. And your overall well-being is actually tied in many ways to that enjoyment of right and healthy relationships. So you think about relationships, there's some relationships that you could point to. Hopefully it's not your relationship with the Lord. But there's some relationships you could point to in your life. Maybe they're coming to your mind right now as I'm talking about your relationships. And you'd say, these are not contributing to my joy. Those relationships are actually taking away from my happiness because they're not healthy relationships. They're not causing me joy because they're not right. There's something wrong about that relationship. And you could come up with a number of different examples or ideas of what might be wrong with that relationship and might actually be taking away from your sense of happiness as you sit here tonight. But the over, your overall well-being, of course, it starts first and foremost with this relational closeness that God wants to have with you and then wants you to experience with others. And so when you think about healthy relationships, there are things that promote relational closeness and there's other things that detract from it or they cause separation in the relationship. So there's not closeness, there's estrangement or there's separation. And the Bible teaches that as it relates to many of our, for sure, our relationship with God, but also our relationship with others, that sin causes separation. One of those factors that can lead to an unhealthy relationship, a relationship of estrangement and separation, is, is sin that is getting in the way, things that are wrong. Naturally, you're not going to have a right relationship if the relationship is characterized by things that are wrong. That just stands to reason. And so when you're thinking about that number one focus of a man or woman of faith, which is their relationship with God, which is the thing that is to come first and be our first priority or consideration or concern, then we often say sin separates, but sin separates in what sense? Sin separates in the sense that it interferes with our relationship with God as that relates to both our ability to be where God is in terms of the penalty of sin, like, so our eternal separation from God. But it also, sin separates in the sense that it interferes with or causes us to have unhealth, an unhealthy relationship with God in time as his children he wa- and him wanting to have a healthy, uh, upright, positive, useful, beneficial relationship with us. That sin hinders that and interferes with that. And so that's a message or a lesson that is taught throughout God's word, but it's touched on by David here in Psalm 32 here tonight, that sin causes separation and it interferes with fellowship with God. Now, the main thrust of his psalm here tonight, or this poem that is written, is not necessarily on the interference or the fact that sin breaks down relationships, but it's actually more focused on the restoration that God wants us to experience when we find ourselves in those places of being distanced from God or estranged from God as a result of sinfulness, and we'll define that a little bit more in in our lesson. 
And so it presents a real problem if we're built for fellowship with God and if sin causes separation from God and if all men are sinners, if all men sin, that's a real problem. And if sin is any time you're operating independent from God, if that's how we're going to define sin, is it goes against the standards of what God says are right, yes, but probably on a, on a more macro level than that, it, when any time you're operating independently from God, that's the ultimate root cause of what then is going to lead to any kind of thinking or then behavior, words, or deeds that would be incompatible with what God says is right. It doesn't start with the actions and the words. It starts with the thinking. It starts with this mentality that says, I'm going to live life or I'm going to go through life in independence on myself or independent from God. I'm not going to walk independence on him. I'm not going to be trusting him. That's active rebellion and rejection of God in those moments, whether you realize it or not. Now, that's the core cause of how does man get in a place where his relationship is strained or it's, he's separated from God, he's estranged from God, not positionally, we're not talking about that. We're talking about a child of God who in, in a particular moment finds himself not to be experiencing closeness with God or relational intimacy or fellowship with God. Now, thankfully, the Bible gives guidance about how to restore fellowship with God when it's broken. And David addresses this topic in Psalm 32. So that's what we're going to take a look at here tonight. Now we have 11 verses to work through. We'll see, we'll see how we get through those here tonight. Let's start though with the first two verses because this psalm starts off with David communicating sort of a conclusion, the conclusion of the whole thought, he starts with that. And so in a sense, that's great for, think about learners who are easily distracted. If, if you're a young person here tonight or an old person who is easily distracted and you find yourself after, before I even get through sort of the opening remarks, you find yourself kind of drifting off in your thinking and, be, and being distracted, the Psalms are for you. Because oftentimes, David will actually put the punchline or put the conclusion right up front. And so, if you're somebody who kind of struggles to get through the whole thing, well, here it is, right up front. Here's sort of the summary. And the summary statement that David is wanting people to realize is that there's blessing or joy associated with being on good terms with God. So being right with God or being on good terms with God or being connected and experiencing intimate fellowship with God, there's joy and blessing in that. So if that's all you're going to take away tonight, be convinced of that. Be 100% convinced that if I want happiness or joy in my life, it's directly related to me experiencing close intimacy with God or being on good terms relationally with God where I'm involved with him, I'm leaning into him, I'm connected to him, I'm enjoying him, and I have that sense of closeness that he made me for. Now there's where joy and happiness is going to be found. Now let's listen to how David says this because of course he's going to do it poetically but he says this, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So what is he talking about? He's talking about a man who's in a right restored relationship with God. He's writing this on the heels of personal sin in his own life decision-making, a way of thinking, an attitude, a perspective in his, own, in his own way of operating that got him to a place of being distanced from God and not experiencing the joy that came from relational closeness to God. 
And so the focus here isn't even on the forgiveness so much as it is on the restoration of that relationship that had been strained or tainted by his own thinking and then the actions, the words, the deeds that flowed from that. So this is written in a conclusory way, in a summary kind of a way. It's written as a means of praising God for making forgiveness and restoration available, but he's not talking about just any kind of forgiveness or restoration. He's talking about relational restoration. He's not talking about positional restoration and positional forgiveness. This is already somebody who is a believer, somebody who's already a man of faith. He's not, he's not trying to convince you that that, to, in order to experience God's forgiveness from the penalty of sin, that you need to be in a right relationship with God, though that's true. That's not the focus of what he's saying here. And so when you look at this word blessed, it refers to one who is characterized by happiness and divine grace. So you say, how did you get the word joy, the joy of a restored relationship, how did you get that out of the word blessed? Because the word means one who is presently happy. One is who's the beneficiary in the present of divine grace. It's a cause for joy. So some translations could have joyful is he who, whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered, who, to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Again, in reference to one who's in a right standing, a healthy relationship with God. Now, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Now, there's three different Hebrew words or phrases that are used here, and they all refer to forgiveness. In fact, all three of them could be translated forgiveness, but for the sake of variety, they translate them each a little bit uniquely. So one is translated forgiven, but they all mean forgiven. One is translated covered, but it means forgiven. One is translated as does not impute iniquity, but again, together they all are referring to this idea of relational forgiveness. Now, together, these are all words that the Hebrew, these three Hebrew words, they all have these kinds of meanings, and I put them all together here, so just listen, I'm going to rattle through it. So together they refer to sin that is being lifted up, taken away from you, removed, again, taken away, hidden, meaning God doesn't even see it anymore, it's covered, concealed, taken away. It refers to sinners as no longer regarded as guilty. So it refers to sin as being lifted up, removed, hidden, concealed, or taken away. It, re it refers to sinners as no longer being regarded as guilty or indebted and now considered to be innocent. So those phrases could be used to describe these words for forgiveness, but when you put it all together, you're talking about sin that has been lifted up, removed, hidden, concealed or taken away, and sinners that are no longer regarded as guilty or indebted and now are considered to be innocent in God's eyes in terms of this restoration of relationship. So as you think about God's forgiveness, of course God's forgiveness is provided both positionally and relationally, but in the immediate context, relational forgiveness is primarily in view. And you'll see that we're talking about a man of faith talking to other people of faith about their relationship or their walk of faith. That's not, the, the context isn't on positional forgiveness. Now, I will say this because sometimes people get a little bit nitpicky about taking Old Testament passages and quoting them for a true transdispensational principle or for a principle that is true but was not the immediate context of even the Old Testament passage. 
And some people take great issue with that. And I would say there's an appropriate place to take something that's a true statement. If it's true positionally, then it's true relationally. And it's true for all of eternity. And so Paul takes this, these exact verses and quotes them in Romans chapter 4. And I forget which verses, but Romans chapter 4, you can see them quoted directly. Now Paul in Romans 4, he's quoting them in the context of justification. Not in the context of spiritual, uh, being made spiritually in good standing with God or being sanctified, being in a right standing with God in the present life of a believer or man or woman of faith. And so this concept of being forgiven, of course you can't have relational forgiveness if there isn't first positional forgiveness. Man does not have any relationship with God. He's described as alienated from God, dead in his trespasses and sins, God's enemy, until something is done in a positional way to forgive him of the consequence or the debt that he owes for his sin. And so there would be no discussion about being right with God in a practical, experiential, daily kind of a walk, walk of faith, if it weren't for God through the, not revealed yet here in Psalms, but revealed and and pointed to in the messianic aspects of the Psalms, pointing to this future redeemer, Messiah, rescuer, Jesus Christ, who would become sin for payment or a, a satisfying payment for the sin of all sinners, including you and I. And how God could, on the basis of the sacrifice of his son and the atoning payment, the shed blood of Jesus Christ, his death and, and his resurrection, God could look at that and he could accept that as a satisfying payment for the just demand that there be death for sin. And so, in a sense, you would say these concepts cannot be separated. I think sometimes we, in, in an effort to make it clean or tidy, we want to understand the Bible in, in more simplistic terms. And so oftentimes we might talk about justification, sanctification, and glorification as if they're fully separate categories relating to past, present, and future. And it looks nice on a chart, but the truth is that there is positional sanctification, there's practical sanctification. There's positional justification and certainly there's practical justification as it relates to our testimony to others, being justified before men, not before God. You're justified one time through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's true. Then you talk about glorification a little bit less of a thing, but as even Pastor Weefel has brought out in some of his messages and some of the things that I've heard him t um, teach on and, and I've brought it out in some of our studies in the New Testament that the glory that we're having access to of God is available in time right now too. It's not just a future share in God's glory. We have the ability to become partakers of the divine nature right now, right where we sit as we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We get to participate in God's very essence in a sense is he is living inside of us, working inside of us to produce a reflection of himself in us when we're yielded instruments for him to work with. So sometimes just be a little bit careful about always wanting to characterize something as past, present, and future tense or always characterize it as this is justification truth, sanctification truth, or glorification truth. And I can share that with you because you, th those that are here tonight are are generally speaking, have been here for a long time. And, and so those are good reminders as we sometimes draw a little bit too sharp of lines in any event, we, we move on from that. So that's how Paul uses it in Romans 4. But now he says this, so the first thing is, everyone should have cause for joy or celebration or praise to God for being forgiven. 
And we're talking about having access to this restoration relationship. Second part to that, he says, and you have to kind of read this in because the blessed is the man applies to all of this. But blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. Remember that said three different ways, but it's the same basic uh, idea. And then the second idea we find at the end of verse two is, and, so blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, same thing as forgiveness, but now we see, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So it's talking about a present existence. In, in that present for existence, there's joy or happiness associated with being in a place where in, in that person's mentality or spirit, there's no deceit. They're right with God. They're open and honest before God. They're not hiding anything. They're not covering anything. They're, they're bringing that and acknowledging those failures and those shortcomings. They're acknowledging those to God. And we'll talk about what that entails in a bit. But that person is blessed, who has that posture or is experiencing that in the, in the present. Now, this is a summary of the one who is presently enjoying fellowship with God. That person who's presently enjoying fellowship with God is not hiding things or covering sin or covering failure or trying to ignore their independent spirit or ignore their past rebellion and rejection of God. They're the person who has a contrite and humble heart and is coming to God and saying, yeah, I, I know that my thinking wasn't what it should have been. And the consequence of my doing my own thing and rebelling against you was that I was, I was saying and doing things that weren't bringing you honor and glory. I, I see that. And I want to stay there. I want to, I'm going to draw nearer or lean into you again. I'm going to come, I'm going to come in a place of dependence now where I'm going to trust you, having acknowledged that that's not where I was at. The, the underlying idea, and again, we'll get to that. But that person is not described as having a spirit of deceit in those moments. That a person who is now experiencing a healthy and right relationship with God. And you think about healthy relationships, this shouldn't be complicated, right? Healthy relationships are built on honesty to a point and openness, not deceit. Now, on human terms, I say honesty to a point and it's trying to be funny there. Uh, if, if your significant other ask you certain kinds of questions, there might be a place for maybe not full disclosure there. Uh, maybe as it relates to their outfit or their hairstyle or things along those lines. That's just common sense, right? Is, is you're not gonna wanna go out of your way to share every last thing that you think. Sometimes those things are best kept to yourself. And But when we're talking about God, and of course that's what we're talking about here, there's a, a healthy relationship with him is going to be built on transparency. It's going to be built on authenticity. God is not a person who can be deceived. Like, it's not working. I mean, think about that for a second. We deceive each other in, in an effort to build an artificially better relationship. We think that if people would somehow see us in a certain light that's completely fraudulent and phony and inauthentic, that they might think better of us. And as a result, we would have a closer relationship with them if we could just convince them of certain things. Does it work? Yeah, to some extent. If somebody thinks these things are true, and if in fact they're not, but they may find, they may admire you a little bit more, and they may be a little bit more interested in spending time with you because they think something is true that's not. Uh, you think about that. Human beings 
are unlovable in the most open sense. If everything was known about every thought, every deed, everything that had ever been done, people would in generally want nothing to do with you. And it's only by virtue of there not being this absolute and complete transparency that people can love us anyway. And God, though, looks at us, he's never fooled. There's not one thing about your life that is unknown to him. So he sees all of that brokenness. He sees all of that filthiness. He sees all of those deplorable things that you wish you could take, have a do-over on, but you can't. He sees all of that, and yet he accepts you fully and loves you fully in spite of yourself. Now, that's why we don't look to human beings for a definition of acceptance of what divine acceptance entails. We look to God for a definition of what divine love looks like, what real love looks like, what real acceptance looks like, because we couldn't find it in human beings. But don't be fooled. You're not deceiving God. There's no, there's no, there's no place in your relationship with God for trying to make things out to be better than they are. Maybe that's the takeaway that you needed tonight. That's, that's the thing that I've needed to be reminded of. God is never deceived. People are, but God never is. So why not, if you want to enjoy the Lord as he intended you to enjoy him, why not just be real with God? Maybe stop with the cliches and the little platitudes, the Christian platitudes that we repeat over and over again without actually meaning them. Maybe just be raw. Maybe be authentic and real with God because he's the only one you really, perhaps he's the only one you could be that authentic with. Maybe that's the place to to start. And you know, God is a compassionate and long-suffering and forgiving God who already knew all of that anyway. Now, what's it doing? It's getting some of the baggage out of the way that is interfering with you actually experiencing and relating to God on the intimate terms that he really wants to be known and, and, and already knows you. You're just getting, those, getting that baggage out of the way. And, and you see that in these Psalms, don't you? Don't you see that in David's, some of the things where he just lays his soul bare before, the God, before God and he just lets go of all that posturing that we're so used to doing around each other? It's sort of sad, but we're, we're taught to be that way. And we, it's learned behavior. And God says, unlearn it. If you really want to have that intimacy with me, unlearn it. Just be raw and real with me. That's what I want. So there's no deceit. A healthy relationship, again, is built on honesty and openness, not deceit. Now, damaged relationships are only ever repaired after you recognize they're broken. So to have this restoration, this joy that comes with restoration, to be a person in whose spirit there is no deceit, you have to have first been the person who saw there was a problem, saw there were things that you needed to, in a sense, get right with the Lord. And so when you think about restoration, it's impossible without acknowledging what caused the damage in that relationship initially. And so this is what this phrase is talking about. The joyful man, the happy man, is the one in, whom, who, in whose spirit there isn't presently any deceit because they have acknowledged what caused the damage. They, uh, they acknowledged what was interfering with that healthy relationship with God. Now let's move on to the alternative. So he starts with the summary. 
the person who's going to be joyful and happy is going to be the person who's on good terms with God. You got that still? Like that's, that's the takeaway. You won't have happiness apart from that. We need to know that. We need to respond to that. We need to take that to the bank and live in light of that. Okay? Now, he describes the alternative. So the alternative to being right with God is misery. It's a broken relationship with God or a strained relationship with God that isn't the relationship that the healthy relationship that God desires or that or that man should be seeking. And so let's read verses three through five. So for day and night, he's talking about a time in his life when he wasn't experiencing relational intimacy with God. He says, during that time, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. We have to back up to verse three. When I kept silent, meaning when I didn't acknowledge these things, when I wouldn't come to you in humility and come to you in honesty and come to you with this lack of deceit, when that was true, when I, did, when I kept silent, I didn't, I didn't open up and acknowledge this to you, God. In that time, my, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. I became kind of old in spirit because I was consistently unhappy and groaning. Verse four, and day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought or the drought of summer. And you read verse five, but then I what? What happened was I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I came to this conclusion, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and the result, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So as we look at the alternative to enjoyment of being in relational good standing with God or having a healthy relationship with him, we have the contrast. And so David, he contrasts the joy of this restored healthy fellowship with the misery of estrangement from God and he, used, he utilizes his own personal testimony as an illustration. You, the takeaway here from these verses should be learn from my experience or take my word for it. And then he explains what he went through. He says, when I kept silent, and he's describing a lack of recognition or acknowledgement of these things that were interfering with his healthy relationship or his joyful relationship with God. And we'll discuss that a little bit more in a bit. But David's poetic description of estrangement, it's quite bleak. You think about the alternative is misery. If you're not enjoying a restored or right relationship, healthy relationship with God, you're, in, you're miserable, Period. And anybody who thinks differently is going to find that out the hard way or already has lived through that. There should be some amens to that in the sense that apart from a right vertical relationship with God, man is miserable and life is meaningless. There is no joy. There is no peace. There is no happiness. There is no purpose. There is no contentment apart from a healthy right relationship, a dependent heart, a dependent relationship on God. And God then being free as a result of that intimacy and that present fellowship to work through us as yielded instruments and vessels in the, the master potter's hands to mold us into, to transform us into the very image of his son and use us in a way that would bring him honor and glory as empowered by his spirit working in and through us. There's no joy apart from that. That's a fixed fact. And so he describes it. I was there, he says. I was silent. I kept silent. I wasn't willing to acknowledge the breakdown in this relationship or fellowship with God. And so then we have this poetic description, how bleak it is. My bones grew old through my groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Doesn't paint a very happy picture, does it? 
And you think about that when it comes to sin. You know, our primary sin in any situation, if, if, if we're in a, in a state of, of being estranged from God, the sin is that we're disregarding God. We're distancing ourselves from God. We're not enjoying God. We're living apart from God. We're operating in defiance and disregard and rebellion and rejection of God. And, and it plays itself out in any number of different ways. We can touch on that a little bit more. But when you think about being in a place where you're not right with God, you don't have a healthy relationship with him. You're not close. There's not that closeness, that intimacy that God wants to have. What is true of that situation? When that's true in your life, then your body and mind are affected negatively. We're affected by sin. See, sin eats away at the believer. Your conscience is actively at work and you're not happy. The Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season, but what kind of pleasure? Phony pleasure, empty pleasure, temporary pleasure. Not true joy or happiness in the sense of what God describes as real happiness and joy. A false or a pseudo joy. Something that's inauthentic and it's masquerading as joy when in fact it's actually causing the opposite in our lives. And you think about that internal conflict and that turmoil that a believer faces when they're in that position. It can lead to a lot of different expressions, one of them being depression, despair, despondency. If you want all D's there, you have some alliteration there. Depression, despair, despondency. Oftentimes, that is connected to not enjoying the Lord, not being in a healthy spot, a healthy place of dependence on the Lord. See, sin weighs on the believer. And anybody who thinks differently is deceived. And if you think about the effects of sin, they're disastrous from a spiritual perspective. They're also disastrous from a human temporal realm perspective too. Now, it's easy for somebody to abuse the grace of God in a sense and not see the real ramifications for sin the way that we ought to. The fallout for sin, the collateral damage and the wreckage that sin causes in our lives and in the lives of those near to us is immeasurable at times. Sometimes it's very obvious. But I would say the fallout is like a ball that you push down a hill and then walk away sometimes. Maybe you're not focused on the, the full ramifications or fallout, but is that ball still being pulled down the hill inevitably by the force of gravity? And the answer is yes. And as that bowling ball, if you will, is bouncing down the hill, it's wreaking havoc and destruction on everything it comes into contact with. It is possible to abuse the grace of God in a sense of just not see the value of a right standing with God and a life that is directed by God that every time your life is directed by God is characterized by, a wor- by being a worthwhile and sin-free, actually, existence. The value of that can't be overstated. Now, the, co- the contrast, though, is we're, we're quick to understate how devastating and destructive living life in sin apart from God is. And we say things like just on the immediate heels of major blowout in our lives, we're, we're saying these kind of Christian platitudes, like things like, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. In the immediate aftermath of something like this sometimes. Is anything about what you said incorrect? 
No, are you a sinner? Yes. Are you saved by grace? Yes. Is God's grace always greater than all your sin? Yes. Is there forgiveness available positionally and relationally? Yes. But if not even a second has passed and you're immediately kind of covering that without learning anything from it and just going right back to a, well, it's, I'm already, it's already something that's been nailed to the cross. Is that all true? Yes. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to take away from the truth of those statements. I'm just saying, can you use them at, in a way that's inappropriate? Where while true, you're also not letting, you're not truly recognizing and acknowledging just how destructive this life apart from the direction of God in your life has been? physically, temporally, and eternally, the eternal ramifications of some of the choices that you're making to live life apart from him. And you just get in this sort of habit where you just quick to just, well, just forget about that and move on. Now, there's, there's no place for an imbalance that takes you to the place of legalism or something along the lines of where you're trying to say, I'm producing a certain manner of living that looks a certain way in my life. I'm doing it through my own strength in order to try to gain God's approval or favor or to make myself spiritual, that my spirituality is tied to doing or not doing things that I'm producing in my flesh through my own strength. That's not what I'm talking about at all. But there's another ditch called license on the other side of the road that is just to make excuses And to, that's why Paul has to share both ditches and talk about both ditches. Should we continue in sin that grace can abound? God forbid. The spirit of life and godliness has given me freedom from the law of what? Sin and then the separation, the death that comes with it. I'm not a slave to sin anymore. I've been given victory. Not through my own strength, victory through the strength that the Spirit of God produces as he enables and equips me to stand in a way and walk in a way that's dependent on fully on God, it's fixated and focused on the author and finisher of my faith and I can enjoy a life that is free from bondage to sin. I'm not in bondage to sin anymore. But if we're not careful, we just focus a little bit too much on our positional standing, we forget about the devastating consequences of living life in time in a way that is relationally estranged from and distant from God because it's being interfered with because of our mentality and then the actions and the words and the thoughts that are connected to that mindset. disastrous consequences from a physical and temporal realm and from an eternal and spiritual perspective. It's dangerous to become desensitized or flippant about the effects of sin. As it relates to the individual believer, sin's interference with fellowship ultimately causes greater harm than anything inherent in the sin itself. The idea there is that when sin interferes with our fellowship with God, that's actually the greater harm. Sin itself harms us, 
But it's a sin to have this, to be in that place of separation from God because it speaks to what? It speaks to a mindset that's operating apart from or independent from God. That's, that's devastating to our ability to live life as God intended us to live life. So then David goes on and he describes the solution to that condition or that estrangement that sin causes in our lives. And the solution to that estrangement, he says, is I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. So we have that in the first part of verse 5. That was the solution to finding, recognizing that he was in this place of estrangement from God. So I acknowledge my sin to you. My iniquity I have not hidden. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Now, I can't say this word properly because it's not a part of our faith background, but I think it's called penitential. Psalms is referring to being penitent or repentant, psalms of repentance. This is, this is one of seven psalms that religious, more religious traditions, but historic traditions had highlighted historically as one of the psalms that is speaking to this heart of repentance or acknowledgement of having to need a, a change in direction or a change of thinking. Now when you think even about that word, the word itself means to change one's mind or to have a change of mind. When you change your mind, that produces a change of direction. And we think about what is ultimately the problem with the current thinking and direction if you need to acknowledge your sin to the, to the Lord or acknowledge the iniquity or to make it bare, lay it bare and not hide it. Or to confess, again, another word for acknowledge my transgressions to the Lord. What was the problem with your current thinking if that's necessary or the current direction? Well, it was a direction or a path that you were on that excluded God and promoted independence. It involved rejection and rebellion and ultimately sinful expressions of all kinds while you were operating with a mentality that said, I don't need the Lord. I don't need to depend on him. I don't need to trust in him. I don't need to involve him in my life. I can just go through life apart from him. That's the problem. So I'm going through life walking in a certain direction with a certain dependence on myself, with a certain focus on myself and others, whatever it may be besides God, and there needs to be a change of thinking that will lead to a change of direction as it relates to that attitude, that perspective, that mentality. See, the focus of the acknowledgement here is on flawed thinking more than specific sin. David never once itemizes a specific sin here. The focus isn't on the specific manifestation of that flawed mindset. The focus is on acknowledging the flawed mindset, the flawed thinking. Your present mentality and the manner of living that it produces, but it's the mentality that's a problem. Sin separates because of the mentality, the thinking or attitude it reflects or represents. Sin is just a, a reflection of this way of thinking, this attitude that you have. And sin is some synonymous from a present, minds, 
with a present mindset of rebellion and rejection, rejection of God. It's never a byproduct of a dependent walk of faith or, enjoy, or present enjoyment of the Lord. You could go through the whole study we did on 1 John to see that that's the case. Sin interferes with that present walk and that present fellowship and that present enjoyment. It's never a byproduct of enjoying the Lord. It's never produced by the Spirit of God working in your life. So now when you think about biblical restoration in that context or relational forgiveness, it's conditioned on this acknowledgement or appreciation for where you're actually at. You can't have a change of thinking or a change of perspective or direction if you don't even acknowledge that there's a problem. And so that's the takeaway or the focus that I would want you to have. Turn, if you will, to Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. We'll talk about this idea of acknowledging that you're in a place that isn't beneficial to this healthy relationship that God wants to have with you. We have 28 verse 13. He who covers... His sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses, and then we have this word and forsakes, which relates to a change of, it, it points to a change of direction, that person will have mercy. Mercy in the Old Testament, always referring to steadfast or unfailing love that God has towards his children. So we have what comes first, this acknowledgement. Whoever acknowledges then what does the acknowledgement lead to or include as God now is in, in control and directing, a change of direction. Instead of distancing yourself from God, it involves drawing nearer to God. And so we see that same principle in terms of how biblical restoration, it needs or requires you to acknowledge or recognize where you're at. That's the same is true of 1 John chapter 1. And in that instance, you had some people who were deceived into thinking that despite walking in sin under the direction of the flesh or the sin nature, they were still in in fellowship with God. And John was like, no, 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 that's not the case. He said in 1 John 1, starting verse 5, he said, this is the message which we have heard from him and we declare to you that God is light. And in him, there's no darkness at all. Now, he's not talking about salvation from sin's penalty. He's talking about a present walk with the Lord. We'll, We'll call it practical sanctification. There's no darkness in that if we're walking in dependence on the Lord. So he says, if we say that we have fellowship with him, which we could, we we may or may not do, we could do that. And but at the same time we're walking in darkness, meaning our manner of living is described by darkness or ungodliness, he says we lie and we don't practice the truth. We don't have an understanding of what's true in those moments. We're deceived. But if we walk, and that's present tense in Greek, if we walk presently. In the light, as he is in the light, we have presently fellowship with one another and, as it was said in the purpose statement a few verses earlier, that we write this to you so that we could have fellowship with you, but truly our fellowship is with the Father. And so the whole purpose of the book, the statement of the book, is that you would experience this desired fellowship as a believer with the Heavenly Father. And so he says we would then be able to have fellowship in those moments where presently we're walking in the light as he is in the light. We'd have fellowship with one another and with God. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses, 
Now, not past tense, present tense, cleanses present tense us from all sin, meaning there's this periodic relational cleansing that Jesus is talking about in contrast to our positional cleansing that occurs through our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone, a one-time positional identification now with Jesus Christ where we're put into the family of God, we're adopted into God's family, we're now viewed, we're, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, we're now viewed positionally and forever as God's children, that occurs in, in terms of positional forgiveness, but he's talking about periodic cleansing, what happens as we live life. Jesus explains this to his followers, his the disciples. He says, well, periodically, you're gonna have, need to have your feet cleansed because you're gonna pick up the defilement of what? The world, but your whole, you don't need to be cleansed anew in terms of your whole body, but you're gonna have to need the defilement. It's gonna need cleansing. Same, same idea, same, same concept is what's being talked about here. He says if we have, he goes on to say, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, talking about presently, that we never sin, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, word means to agree with God, say the same thing as God, acknowledge what God says about what is right and wrong, he is what? Faithful to, and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, how does this passage in Psalm, this, little, this section, how does it end? He ends by restating God's faithful response. He says there was a problem. I dealt with that problem by acknowledging my sin. I didn't hide it. And I confessed my transgressions to the Lord. God promises restoration. So what do we see as God's response? It says, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. When I brought that before the Lord and acknowledged where I was at, the flaws in my thinking, then you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, does he itemize a sin here? No. Is he focused on a specific sin? Some would try to say that he is, but uh, perhaps. Did he have certain bigger ticket sins in his life? Yeah, but God doesn't see things that way. Were there things that particularly were damaging and destructive to his life? Yes. Uh, were there, but is all sin damaging and destructive? Answer, yes. So anyway, you look at this, that was God's response. Healing and restoration, they're produced by forgiveness. So what, what was it that restored and healed David? Was it his fixation on sin, his fixation on failure, his, his occupation and obsession with all of the things that he had gotten wrong? No, his acknowledgement that he hadn't been in a right place and hadn't been thinking correctly, turning back to the Lord, that change of direction where he was now operating in dependence on God, God then provided the restoration. What, by, by what means? By having forgiveness, what we'll call relational forgiveness. By doing that, God had provided the healing and the restoration, not this fixation with sin. Lots of believers have that wrong too where they think about, I have to consistently be, be itemizing or focusing on my sin. No, what you need to be focused on is either you're walking in dependence on the Lord and trusting him or you're not. And when you're not, it's a problem that you need to acknowledge because consistent with or as a byproduct of that thinking, your life was a train wreck and a dumpster fire and connected to that were sin of all various kind of, thing, of types and sorts on the specific level, but he was never focused on the specific level per se, more so he was focused on how did you get there and what's the path forward? And so too often you hear people talking about specific individual sin as the focus and it's not. Now, does that mean it's wrong 
if you're aware of some specific failure, some specific thing in your life to ever talk to God about it? No, you're supposed to have this ongoing talking your way, praying your way through the day, walk with God where you're in regular communication with him, you're being raw, you're being honest and open and transparent with God. Would it be of any surprise that as you were made aware of not just a mentality that was off, but of specific things that were contrary and offensive to God that you might say, Bring that before the Lord and acknowledge that to the Lord? That wouldn't be wrong in and of itself. My point, though, is that that's not your main issue. Those things were the byproduct of faulty, flawed, boneheaded thinking. And God needs to get a hold of your, your thinking. So now we get to this next section, verses 6 and 7. Spiritually sensitive believers, they seek to avoid estrangement. They're, they're, not, they're not wanting to be estranged from God. They're seeking to avoid it. Now, this section encourages everyone to apply what David has learned himself. Now, I want to say this about this section. I'm not 100% sure of this. This is the best I can figure out. This is kind of difficult language, but I think from the context, this is what he's getting at. So let's read the verses here. Verse six. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, then they shall not come near him, meaning the water shall not come near him, the one who is praying to God. Verse seven, you are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble and you shall surround me with songs of deliverance. We quote that often, taking it out of the context here, but the context is, of course, in, the, in a conversation about restoration of relationship and about having um, acknowledged our sin to God or flawed thinking to God so that we could be made right or in a, be put in a healthy place, in a healthy relationship with God again. Now let's go back to verse six there. Godly here references, in, in my opinion, it references any believer who is presently following God or thinking straight. So every believer who is presently thinking straight, because that's what we're talking about, is a restored believer here. That one who is restored to a place of present intimacy, that one is praying to God, talking to God. Now, offer prayer to you refers to this type of restoration, seeking acknowledgement and walk of faith. That kind of person the godly person isn't hiding his sin. He's not running from his sin. He's not trying to ignore or cover his sin. The godly person who has the right kind of thinking is recognizing and acknowledging sin and talking to God about it. He's bringing it to God. He's offering prayer to you. So then when you see this phrase, when you may be found, so this godly believer who has the right kind of thinking recognizes he's imperfect, recognizes he's in a place where his thinking is off, he offers prayer, he seeks that, he acknowledges that thinking to God and he seeks that restoration when you may be found. It refers to upon discovering where he's at or upon discovering his faulty thinking or upon discovering his sin. And that's how one translation has it. And I think that's the best translation. That's the context. That's what we're talking about here. Now, others try to point to this idea that it's referring about having, upon finding or coming to a place of having trouble in your life. So, maybe they're right. I don't think that's the focus here, though. In a time when you may be found, it says that's when you realize that there's trouble or difficulty is what most of the other translations would kind of take from that. I don't know. From my perspective, the result is that one who is quick to value 
and want to restore his relationship with God will be able to face the unavoidable adversities in life confidently trusting in God's presence, protection, and provision. He won't be toppled by the rising water. So what happens is he's saying in verse six, the one who finds himself in this place who's a spiritually sensitive believer who recognizes and acknowledges where he's at will always go to the Lord and acknowledge these things or talk to God about it and he'll do it when he realizes upon discovering where he's really at. That person who's doing that is not going to be thrown about or derailed by the floods of life. See, surely that person who has that mentality, then when a flood comes, surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. That will be the result of the person who has that mindset and perspective and posture that I just described is my takeaway from verse six. So when that person is facing the unavoidable adversities in life, they're doing it confidently. They're trusting in God's presence, protection, and provision. In a sense, they're not toppled by the rising waters. So surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. Now, what's the alternative? And this is what makes verse 7 make more sense. Now, in verse 7 then, the alternative is instead of being toppled by the rising flood waters, the believer that is presently walking with the Lord is resting in the Lord. Now, note the confidence of verse 7. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Why? Because I'm in a restored state with you. I'm not tossed about in unbelief by these rising waters in life. Now, whether that's what this means or not, that principle that I just explained is certainly true. So I can find confidence in that, though I think verses six and seven there are kind of tough sledding. Now, verses eight and nine, relational closeness involves a willingness to be led. So we're still talking about this restored relationship, this, restre- this relational closeness and intimacy with God. Now let's read verses eight and nine. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. What happened before? You were following your own path. How did that lead? It led you to a place of estrangement from God and a breakdown in that fellowship and relationship. So he says instead of that, the one who is godly minded, spiritually sensitive in these moments, trusting God, they're gonna listen to this where God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Now he says, do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding which must be harnessed and bit with bit and bridle, else they will not come near to you. You have to be dragged along. And I just think about this in the context. David is having a contrite and humble heart, recognizing and acknowledging and enjoying the restoration that God provides when he's been off in Looney Tune land. And so as a result of this restored mentality of trusting and depending on God, he's not like a stubborn horse or mule. Are you being like a stubborn horse or mule tonight? Is that our general posture? Is that how I'm dealing with life? God's having to bring me along, kicking and screaming? I'm not just allowing him to have his way in me and work in me, direct me, use me. I'm not a vessel in his hands that is a willing, yielded vessel or instrument. What fun language. But those are the two Alternatives. God consistently gives these instructions in his word. This isn't new. David is speaking from a perspective of God's previous instructions to his children. And every believer is always given these two options. Trust in the Lord and let him direct or don't. 
Failure to trust and follow the Lord is ultimately what is interfering with fellowship and it's creating the need for the restoration, though, that David is talking about here. So you have an option. It's to just trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Those are the options. Don't be like the horse of the mule. Be somebody who is not stubborn, but somebody who is sensitive and somebody who is flexible and somebody who is usable and somebody who is, who is soft-hearted to the Lord. So the Lord can shape him and mold him and direct him. So then we come to the end here. There's great joy associated with rightly relating to God. So the whole thing is, starts with praise and joy is associated with a restored relationship. That's something we're singing a song of praise about. And that's what he ends with too. There's great joy associated with rightly relating to God. Verse 10. Many sorrows shall be, shall be to the wicked in this context, I actually believe he's referring to anyone, including believers, who's not trusting the Lord, who's not walking by faith, who's doing their own thing. What's the contrast? But, in contrast, he who trusts in the Lord, in the Lord mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. Be right in a right relationship with God so that you can celebrate and have happiness and joy. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. It's connected to that right walk with the Lord, which is connected to a right relationship with the Lord, which at times needs restoration, is sort of the flow of thought here. So you have those two alternative outcomes associated with the possible choices of either being soft to the Lord or being in a place of being a horse or a mule, being stubborn or resisting the Lord. Man, the, you have to effectively choose between sorrow or joy. Sorrow shall be to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord experiences joy, rejoicing, gladness. Shouldn't it be an easy decision? Man, it should be an easy decision for us. Why do we struggle with it? So you think about the joy of a restored relationship. I hope that was real clear here tonight. God wants his children to enjoy him and live life with him. That involves rightly relating to him and experiencing intimate fellowship with him. Now, if you have an attitude of independence, it interferes with that. It causes you to act and operate with rejection and rebellion against God, and it manifests itself in all manner of ungodliness. Sin then separates, and it causes this incalculable collateral damage and wreckage in your physical life, in your spiritual life, in your emotional life. But the thing that you should find hope in tonight, if that's a place that you even find yourself in, estranged from God, not trusting God, not walking with Him, restoration, it's available to all who recognize and acknowledge where they're at. Restoration is preferable to life that's lived apart from God. And there's joy in restoration. Why? Because it brings you close to God. And God is ultimately the source of all happiness. So do you want to be happy? Easy question. Yes or no? If the answer is yes, then live life close to God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for this passage on restored relationships and acknowledging where we're at with you so that that transparency, that honesty, that can actually allow you to then make a course correction in our lives and in our thinking and then 